Welcome to part three of our series in 1 Timothy, Mercy, Modesty, and Money. Oh, good, a sermon about money, everybody's favorite topic. There's a minister in Sault Ste. Marie used to put it, every so often he figured he should preach what he called the Sermon on the Amount. Don't worry, I'm not going to get that specific today. A church board, not ours, decided that people in the congregation were embarrassed when the offering plates were passed. So they thought they ought to have a new system that wouldn't embarrass anybody, especially those who couldn't give. They asked the pastor to design a way of handling it so people could give as they came in or went out. So he built several boxes and put them at each door. But these boxes were just a bit different. They were high tech. If you dropped in a dollar or more, it made no noise. It was silent. If you gave a half a dollar, a little bell tingled. If you gave a quarter, it blew a whistle. If you gave a dime, a siren went off. If you gave a nickel, a shot sounded. And if you gave nothing, it took your picture. <laughs> Just a reminder, baptism again, August 25th, uh, as was announced earlier. Constantine, the emperor, when he was baptized, he held his sword hand out of the water. Some of us, unfortunately, we're a bit like that with our wallets. We kind of hold our wallet out of the water when we're going down, so don't, don't let that happen to you. If uh, we're baptism picture of being sunk into Jesus, all we are, lock, stock, and barrel, including our wallets. So we launch into this rather sensitive topic in the last chapter of 1 Timothy. I find it can be dealt with under four broad categories, each a basic question. What's really real? What's the point? what counts, and what's going to last. My Christian education prof at seminary used to maintain that one of the most basic aspects of philosophy, the field of epistemology, or study of how we know what we know, boils down to the question, what's really real? To appreciate our Christian worldview better, consider a couple of alternatives. A Hindu person would view what we see as an illusion, a fraud, from hindu-website.com. According to many schools of Hinduism, the world is an illusion, a play of the supreme consciousness of God. It is a projection of things and forms that are temporarily phenomenal and sustain the illusion of oneness and permanence. Says the Yoga Vashista, the world is nothing but a mere vibration of consciousness in space. It seems to exist even as a goblin seems to exist in the eyes of the ignorant, end quote. So that's the Hindu view. That's one opinion, the world as an illusion. On the other hand, consider a dominant worldview here in the West, that of materialism. It would say that what you see is all there is. An online definition for materialism describes it as the doctrine that nothing exists except matter and its movements and modifications. The biblical worldview, by contrast, is neither of these. In contrast to Hinduism, it maintains that God purposefully created real material objects and in fact became incarnate in Jesus, taking on flesh to become a real tangible sacrifice, making atonement for humanity's sins. In contrast to materialism, the Bible teaches there are spiritual forces, agents, principalities that work behind the scenes, impacting what happens very significantly. For example, Satan tempting Jesus in the desert or entering into Judas Iscariot. Science and medicine emerged in the West partly due to its philosophic foundations in Christianity. 
The universe was orderly and could be studied because a, a rational creator designed it so and equipped humans to unravel the mysteries of nature. But we are so immersed in secular Western culture with its technology, advertising, and media, we risk confusing its worldview with that of the Bible. How would the apostles answer the question, what's really real? Well, there's an awareness that there's something beyond this present world. 1 Timothy 6-7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. So Paul's conceding or suggesting there's something outside our current human existence. Oh, verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What's really real? What can we truly get a grip on? Take hold of eternal life. Hmm. Something beyond our 24-7 cradle-to-grave existence. We look especially at verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Huh? Isn't this life truly life? That's not what the inspired scripture writer is saying. Paul's focus is clearly on being ready for the coming age. Don't get duped by culture into thinking this life is all there is. But you've got to grab what you can because you only go around once. No, this life is the dot at the beginning of a line that goes on forever. This life is not the main event. Getting a grip means preparing for, taking hold of eternal life, the life that is truly life. Was Paul being extreme? How did another apostle, Peter, view the world and its permanence? 2 Peter 3, 10-13. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with us his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Scripture elsewhere talks about the sky being rolled up like a scroll. God's in charge of this set of dimensions and can change it anytime he pleases. Our worldview affects how we deal with daily things, the, the degree of importance we attach to objects. Paul again, 1 Corinthians 7.30. Those who buy something, raise your hand if you bought something this week. Yeah, he's talking to you folks, yeah. Those who buy something should live as if it were not theirs to keep. Ooh. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For, big because, for is a because, this world in its present form is passing away. It's not an illusion as in Hinduism, but neither is it all there is as in materialism. That helps us not to worship or become too enchanted with or idolize material goods. Next big question is, what's the point? We all have this yearning for life to be meaningful, to make sense, for there to be some kind of purpose to our existence. Darwinism would contend, 
They're just random bits of protoplasm emerging spontaneously from the primordial soup. Hapless products of time plus chance plus matter, which frankly is not very satisfying to the postmodern person searching for meaning. Paul interrupts the main flow of this section with a doxology erupting from his soul, which highlights what he's living for, who is the author of purpose in his own life. Verses 15 and 16, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. See, this doxology erupts into Paul's uh, speaking. The only ruler, potentate, who alone is immortal. Paul may have, in the back of his mind, some of the blasphemous claims made by Roman emperors. At his death, Augustus, here in the picture, Emperor 27 BC to AD 14, the son of a god, was himself declared a god. Uh, by the way, this is the first Sunday in what month? August. This is the guy that named this month his month. I'd kind of like next month to be Ernest Month. Uh, a little egotistical, maybe? I don't know. It got worse. Domitian, Emperor AD 81 to 96, demanded to be addressed as Dominus et Deus Noster, i.e. our Lord and our God. So right here, Paul is making a pointed assertion about God being the only true sovereign. The buck stops here. It's God who is ultimately in control, and to him alone ought to be ascribed honor and power. God is at the center of Paul's universe. Jesus Christ is on the throne and returning soon. Our independence-loving, freedom-worshipping, anti-authoritarian culture often demands to know, who says? Postmoderns and millennials are ultra-suspicious of authority structures, including denominations. How many community churches have you seen popping up along the countryside? But Paul is very clear about the authority structure, the chain of command in his life. Note the strictness of his terms in exhorting young Timothy, verses 13 and 14. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What authority does Paul cite as the basis for enjoining his apprentice to do these things? In the sight of God and of Christ Jesus. Paul is conscious of always acting in plain view of God and his Savior. That's where his accountability lies, who he will have to answer to one day. Jesus urged his followers to get their priorities straight. Life is not about scurrying, about worrying foremost about food and clothes, what we'll eat and wear. Matthew 6.33. Let's read this one together. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Compare another doxology, Paul erupts with spontaneously as if out of nowhere. This one smack dab in the middle of his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
Is God so much the center of your life, of your focus, that occasionally you burst out in praise to him as your one and only, the central reference point in your life, the one you are seeking most of all to please every waking moment? What's really real? What's the point? Third question, what counts? What really matters? How do we keep score? For the materialist, it's primarily about accumulating more stuff than the person up the street. The newer car, the nicer house, the extra toys, the better vacation. But Paul warns against such obsession in verses 9 and 10. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wanting to get rich, Paul warns, is a trap, like a snare that catches an animal by the leg and drags it down. Those desires lead to destruction. Love of money, literally affection for silver, is a root, a springboard or starting point of all kinds, all sorts of evil. Now, money in itself is not bad. It can be used for good. It's a tool. It can be a kingdom tool, very much. But love of money is the culprit. It's competing then for our top affection, which ought to be for our creator, redeemer. Jesus warned right in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Which will it be? The problem begins when we start to prefer money over our master, the Lord Jesus. It becomes a source of our security, our sufficiency. Jesus told the parable in Luke 12 of the rich fool who, when confronted with abundant harvest, opted to build bigger barns to feed his own consumption. Luke 12, 19. I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. He had this sense of not needing God any longer. He was set. He had it made based on his own resources. In the Cotton Patch Gospel by Clarence Jordan, the rich man decides to recline, dine, wine, and shine, fool. But what's God's response to the rich man's plan? Luke 12:20. God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus concludes, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Aye, that's the nub of the matter. Are we rich toward God? Where is our affection, our attention, more inclining toward what's truly our precious? Spiros Zodietes uh, writes, when you fix your eyes on things, invariably it leads to materialism. You fix your eyes on things and you'll continually be attracted to gadgets, money, an abundance of the plastic, chrome, metal, wood, all the elements about us. You'll continually be dissatisfied. The millionaire John D. Rockefeller was asked one time, how much does it take to satisfy a man completely? He said, it takes a little bit more than he has. 
Lee confessed his greed after being fired by Ford from a job that paid a million a year plus perks. That'd be a bit of a come down. Iacocca admitted that of the seven deadly sins, greed is by far the worst. He quoted his Italian-born father. My father always said, be careful about money. When you have 5,000, you'll want 10. When you have 10, you'll want 20. He was right. No matter what you have, it's never enough. By contrast, what's the apostle's wisdom on the matter? Let's read together 1 Timothy 6.6. Read it with me. But godliness with contentment is great gain. One more time. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness we talked about last week in chapter 2. John MacArthur notes, Godliness refers to one's reverence for God and could be translated God-likeness. Whereas righteousness means to do what is right in relation to both God and man. It emphasizes outward behavior. Uh, some of you were at uh, Bert Corbett's funeral. Remember Rob at his father's funeral describing Bert's angst when he found out some booklets had been left over from the contest giveaways? What was the right thing to do? Bert couldn't rest until he'd done the right thing. That's righteousness. Godliness with contentment. Contentment pertains to sufficiency of the necessities of life. Self-sufficiency. It describes an independence of changing circumstances. What's on Paul's short list? What's he view as essentials for contentment? A 55-inch LCD screen? The latest smartphone? Nice home in the country? Uh, let's look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Hmm. We get a little more insight into Paul's perspective on contentment. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. It says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What is that secret, Paul? Please tell us. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What's the secret to contentment? Knowing who you are in Christ. Having solid faith and trust in your Savior. Then nothing can rattle you. You can be truly content, independent of your circumstances. Most free indeed. We're singing one of those songs about free in Christ. Not contingent on other factors. As the song puts it, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Reaching for riches robs us of what life's really supposed to be about. Verse 10. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Consequences include both a negative loss, that's the wandering from the faith, and a positive pang, pierced with many griefs. The word eager in eager for money means to stretch oneself in order to touch or grasp something, stretching out. Proverbs 119 warns, such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. It robs them of life. Instead, Paul tells Timothy what to be reaching for. Verse 11, flee from all this, same Greek root as to be a refugee, 
Flee from that and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Invaluable qualities the Lord is seeking to build into our character. Intangibles, but oh, so important. When you're six feet under, it's not the size of your bank account that matters anymore. What will people remember about the kind of person you were? Final question today, what's going to last? Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Wealth is uncertain. A quotation attributed to famous financier J.P. Morgan features someone asking him what the market was going to do that day, and he purportedly answered, it will fluctuate. Yep, there's another tariff on China. Boom, market drops 1%. Psalm 62.10. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Proverbs 23.5. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone, for they'll surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Instead, we're to put our trust and hope in God who can provide all our needs. Jeremiah 9.23 This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Putting our hope in wealth amounts to idolatry, worshiping material things rather than our creator. Ephesians 5, 5. For of this you can be sure, Paul says, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Hmm. Do you want part of the kingdom of Christ? You better not be greedy or immoral or impure, but greed, that's a lot harder one to spot when people are coming into church. Wow, in a materialist culture, preach to be greedy is to worship an idol. When we're well off, we may start to feel we need God less, so become arrogant, 617. Literally, high-minded to have an exalted opinion of oneself. Paul tells Timothy the antidote to greed in verses 18 forward. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. That's a different kind of richness. Be generous and willing to share, inclined to impart, free in giving, small l, liberal. Is that how you're inclined? Our Savior was very pointed on how we should deploy material resources for future spiritual benefit. Luke 12, 32, he said, Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Is that your picture of your Heavenly Father? Pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
are we secure in confidence that our Father is pleased to give us the kingdom? Are we focused on heavenly treasure that doesn't get robbed or moth-eaten? Where is our heart, really? These days, as you drive about the countryside, you can see signs of harvest beginning with the wheat coming off, straw being baled, corns tasseling out. Are you ready for eventual spiritual harvest? What are you sowing? Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Doing good here and now will reap a harvest later. What's going to last? Not your pocketbook. You can't take it with you. No hearses pulling you holes. Settle it in your soul that like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, you need to be living for treasure beyond this earthly life. Chuck Swindoll tells of Ray Steadman, a California pastor and author who once traveled across the country for a week of meetings. The only problem was his baggage didn't make it. Some of you know what that's like. Ray needed a couple of suits, so he went down to the local thrift shop and was pleased to find a row of suits. He told the salesman, I'd like to get a couple of suits. This man smiled and said, good, we got several, but you need to know they came from the local mortuary. They've all been cleaned and pressed, but they were used on stiffs. Not a thing wrong with them. I just didn't want that to bother you. Ray replied, oh, no, that's fine. So he hurriedly tried some on and bought a couple for about $25 each. When he got back to his room, he began to get dressed for the evening's meetings. As he put one on to his surprise, there were no pockets. Both sides were all sewn up. Though surprised, he thought, why, of course, stiffs don't carry stuff with them when they depart. The suits looked as if they had pockets, but they were just flaps on the coat. He told me later, I spent all week trying to stick my hands in the pockets. I had to hang my keys on my belt. When you go to make that final journey from this life, you won't be able to tuck anything in your pocket. Instead, tuck yourself in Christ, here and now. All we have and are comes from him. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, life that is truly life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Yes, material blessings, food and clothes and practical needs. Thank you even more, Lord, for provision for our eternal life, for forgiveness for our sins. Thank you for your word that teaches and guides us. Help us, Lord, to live for what's really worth living for. In Jesus' name.